This is Anthony and Areno, and you're listening to In the Arena. I want you to join me April 13th, 2017 in Atlanta, Georgia at the Intercontinental in Buckhead, a great location and a great venue for the first ever Outbound Conference. This conference is about increasing your prospecting activity, building your pipeline, and being productive with the time you had. And I'll be there for the full day and joined by three of my closest friends, Jeb Blunt, author of Fanatical Prospecting, Mark Hunter, author of High Profit Selling, and Mike Weinberg, author of New Sales Simplified and Sales Management Simplified. And I love these guys, and we're going to give you a full day of content, including keynotes and individual workshops where you're going to get our very best ideas that you can go back and use in your sales game today. So if you're a salesperson, go out to outboundconference.com forward slash get hyphen invited so that you can get on the invitation list. And if you're a sales leader, either go there and sign up yourself or reach out to us directly so that you can bring your team for a full day at a price that is embarrassingly low and you're going to love it and everyone's going to be there. So Outbound Conference 2017. You'll find the link in the show notes and we will see you there. The internet is really a strange place. You can know someone without ever really knowing that person. And Mark Schaefer is that person for me. We're connected on Facebook. We're connected on Twitter. We've communicated back and forth over the years, but I never really met Mark and I never really had a conversation with him. But I was aware of him through the first book he wrote called The Tao of Twitter and then The Content Code. And then one piece of content, which I ask him about here in the arena, is Content Shock, which we'll talk about. But his new book, Known, came out, and I had to bring him on to talk about how you can use the digital tools to become known and to create an awareness for you and your brand and not be a secret agent. One of those people who has really, really strong chops, but nobody knows how to get a hold of you or what you really do. So this is my friend, Mark Schaefer, author of Known in the Arena. We're talking about your new book, Known, which you sent me the PDF manuscript and I read it on my screen. And I'm so like grateful I was- to that, by the way. I'm, I'm just so, I mean, you know something, Anthony, I never, ever take for granted when people spend time with me and my content. I mean, that is such yeah. an amazing gift. It so is. really, so thank you. Thank the you gift for being- of your time and attention. Yeah. I mean, the, the single finite non-renewable resources yeah. that you have, right? It's so humbling. That's what I think too. Whenever anybody says they read it, I'm just thrilled that you know yeah. somebody read my content. Let me get right into the content of the book, because what I tend to do on these, if I can, and I know I'm going to be able to do it with you, Mark, is I want to take people on a little bit of a path where they can start to see, okay, there are things that I can do now, and I can think about this different. 
And I want to start with the very beginning of the book and this idea of what is the new equity of influence and what's mm. the old equity of influence and draw, <laughs> pull those apart for us so people can see how different they are, if you would. Well, this is a great story with a sales perspective that was not in the book, but I thought about you about three and a half years ago. I was bidding on the biggest contract of my life. It was with, it was a government contract and there was this vetting process. So I had to be interviewed by all these procurement directors from the, the government agency. And so they had this Skype call and it was kind of intimidating because I didn't know any of these people. And they had this table full of people looking at me over Skype. So I was prepared and I started talking about myself and, and who I was and what I had accomplished. And about 90 seconds into my explanation, the purchasing director interrupted me and said, oh, Mr. Schaefer, we know who you are. We all, we all read your blog. It's kind of scary when the government says that, though, isn't it? Yeah. And Anthony, I knew at that moment I had the deal because I was known. Yeah. I had an advantage. I had built up this equity of influence with these people, even though they didn't know me. I had an emotional connection with these people I had never met before. And I knew, you know, my competitors, they weren't known. I was known. I was going to get the business. The people who are known today, that's what opens the doors. That's what brings in more opportunities. That's who gets the speaking deals or the book deals. So that is really the only transferable, sustainable asset we have in our careers today. It used to be, I used to work for a big Fortune 100 company, and I had, you know, I had won two chairman's awards. I'm the, as far as I know, I'm the only person in the company that's ever won this thing twice. You know, it's like the Medal of Honor for your company. You get all these stock options and everything. You know, I had this big global staff. I had achieved all these things, but you don't care about that. <laughs> you don't know about that. Well, you do because you read the book. I, I but, don't even know what company it was. And I don't talk a lot about it. I know. That. I read your stuff. I can't find yeah, the company. But it was Alcoa. Back then, it was a Fortune 100 company. Now, they've split into pieces. But I was the global director of e-business for this big company. I was the go-to guy for the internet. I was creating customer portals in Russia and China and all over Europe and South America. I had this you know, global team. I was being wined and dined all over the world. Then I started my own business. Nobody gave a crap about that anymore. <laughs> and the, the only thing that matters, the only reason I'm here with you today is because I'm known. I'm not some you know, sales guy knocking on doors or something like that. I am known. And that is influence and that's equity I have with you that other people don't have with you. And now I have this opportunity to see you face-to-face -face for the first time. And you know, man, you never know where that will lead. You just invited me to have dinner with you in Columbus yeah. before we start recording. You know, And that's when magic happens. I know you from the Tao of Twitter, though, because I read that very early on. How old is that mm -hmm. book? The first edition came out in 2010. Oh, I thought it was even earlier. It was still early. I think it was 2000. And, I think it was 2010. And then it was picked up by, by McGraw-Hill 
in 2012 and another edition came out in 2014 and I'll have another edition coming out later this year. Awesome. Let me tell you about a group of people that I know who have really deep chops. I mean, specific subject matter expertise, like the Liam Neeson character, you know, in Taken or whatever. They're, they're, they're like that. Mad skills, <laughs> but no one on earth knows who they are. Mm-hmm. And, and so mm-hmm. the book starts with just the very concept that it's critical that you be known. And I want to ask you about a confusion that I see some people have with being known versus being famous. And, yeah. and they're, they're, yeah. they're very different concepts that you outline in the book. And I think I, I want you to draw the distinction here on the value of being known, like the story that you shared. That's a value of being known. Yes. And a great example from the book is this pediatrician who started blogging and her goal, the reason she wanted to be known, not around the world, not even around the country, just in her area of rural Virginia, was she wanted to change people's minds about inoculation. These children were not being vaccinated. And she was really disheartened because after a year of creating content, she only had five readers. (laughs) But a woman wrote her and said, I didn't know this information existed. Thank you for sharing this. I just got my children inoculated. I'm getting my nieces and nephews inoculated. And I'm not going to stop until every child in my neighborhood is inoculated. Now, she became known to accomplish a goal. She created an appropriate digital presence and a reputation to help her achieve her goal, whatever it is. You may only need five followers or a hundred, you know, or maybe in my case or your case, you know, we could have hundreds of thousands because we're a voice of authority in our, in our field. And we want lots of people to know about us and buy our books. So it has to do with what is your goal? Do you want to raise more money for your charity? It would help you to be known, but you may not need millions of followers. So it's not about being on the red carpet or being on national television. It's about being known in a profound way that will help you achieve your goals. So like Kim Kardashian. Yeah, she's famous. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's like, what do you want to be known for? Is more yes. important than just being known. What do you want to be known for? And then what are you going to do with that? And I think that right. it's an important distinction, because, especially for young people and millennials who are seeing people reach a certain level of fame, yeah. but they're not really known for the value that they create. They're just known, like, yeah. I mean, the value that Kim Kardashian creates is strictly, it's like watching a car accident. You have to turn your neck to look at it. Right. But there's nothing there for somebody on the other side that somebody says, that really changed my my life in a positive way. Yeah. And you know, you, you bring up such a good point and it was something that, that moved me a lot as I was working on this book, I interviewed nearly a hundred different people for this book. And I kept hearing people say, the reason I do this, the reason I get up and keep going and keep creating this content and keep pushing forward is because I know I'm making a difference. I'm impacting people in some way. And I just kept hearing this over and over again. Then I started getting into the research about how people persevere. And there's an excellent book called Grit by Angela Duckworth. And she actually did the psychological research of why some people can persevere. 
And one of the key cornerstones, Anthony, is purpose. And I think that is one of the things missing in this, in with a lot of young people today specifically, that they want to be internet famous, but they're going to flame out because it's all about them. And the people who really make this happen over a period of time know it's about others. And, and you've got, it may not become apparent at first, but at some point in your journey, you have to have a realization, wow, I'm making a difference here. And that helps you keep going, even when everything inside of you is telling you, boy, it's going to be hard to do that today. Yeah, it's another orientation instead of a self-orientation. Yeah. Yeah, I mm-hmm. think that's the difference between being known and being famous. Let me ask you, and I, I have really strong opinions on this, particularly in my space, but how important is content creation in this process? And I, let me share my, yeah. my strong bias with you. Yeah, sure. I think that there's a lot of people that talk about social selling, which has sort of run its course because it overpromised and underdelivered. But mm-hmm. I think it's because the content creation is missing for a lot of people. They, they're not natural content creators. They're not allowed mm-hmm. to in a lot of cases. I mean, if you work mm-hmm. in financial or medical and you go, I'm a sales rep, I'm going to write blog posts. They're like, not without legal looking at every word, you're not. But yeah. it, it seems like a lot of people misunderstand the value of this. And I think that as curators, they're pointing at me, they're pointing at you. But if you can't create content, tell me tell me about that piece of this framework that you built. Well, you know, you bring up some amazing points. And I want to tell you something. I'm going to tell you a little story that's going to give you so much hope, I think. I'm working with a big company right now, a big tech giant out in California. And they are taking a position that for their employees to create content and establish a personal brand, to be known, to establish their own voice of authority on the web, that is a life skill. They're encouraging everyone to do it. And I'm, I'm like so excited by this because you're right. So many companies are like holding their employees back. They're saying, no, stop, don't do it. We don't trust you. You've got to follow these guidelines. And look, we don't want anybody to get in jail. But the social media policy for those companies, the de facto social media policy is our employees are idiots. Yeah. yeah. Why, if you trust them to talk to your customers and solve customer problems, why can't you trust them to be on Twitter? There's one wealth management company I work with. They would not allow their employees to even have a LinkedIn profile. You can't compete that way anymore. So that's one aspect is that I think the world is starting to change, starting to recognize, let's unleash these people. Let's unleash their power, their voice, because if they amplify us, even in a little way, they're trusted and the benefits will be profound. What's interesting to me about that story from you is Jack Welch used to tell a story about going in to do a workout session where... You would go into the manufacturing floor and anybody could present any idea they wanted. And 95% of them had to have a yes or no on the spot. So they were allowed to reserve the right to look at some of them. One manufacturer, you know the story? One one employee walked up to him and said, you've paid us for our backs and our hands and you could have had our brains for free anytime you wanted to. And it's sort of what you're saying is the same thing. You paid us to be knowledge workers inside. And you could have had us developing the relationships yeah. if you would have let us loose. It's the same thing, but now outside of the industrial age into this, this new digital age. 
And let's talk about this from a personal perspective. I don't know about you, but I'm reading a lot right now about how bots and artificial intelligence and algorithms are going to be taking a lot of knowledge worker jobs. Many economists are predicting massive job reductions. And of course, there are going to be new opportunities, and there always are. But it's probably not going to be making up for what's going to be happening to a lot of people that we know. And in that environment, how are you going to compete? How are you going to stay relevant? How are you going to go on to the next thing? Again, becoming known, that is going to create a permanent and and sustainable advantage. I was just talking, I I was working with a group of journalists in Europe. They were like kind of the the anchor people on, on their network news over there. And they're struggling with this because they were taught they're news people. They shouldn't be creating a brand. They shouldn't be having a voice. And I said, you know, those days are over. And I was a journalist. <laughs> but today, you've got to think more like a blogger, where you create the content, but you also grow the audience. You promote the content. And if you can create as an individual, as a journalist, that emotional connection between you and your content and an audience, that will keep you relevant even in an age of bots. You're Tom Friedman. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you've got something bigger than that. What's interesting, I don't know if you saw this, Musk came out last week and said that robots should pay taxes. Did not see that, but that's, that's yeah. yeah I, 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 I read a few articles about how are we going to make this transition? Yeah. And, you know, we, we need to somehow create a new revenue stream and turn it back to give people some level of guaranteed income because there's going to be this, we're, we're in it, the, the next industrial revolution. Oh yeah. I don't think it's industrial. I think it's intelligence. So yeah, let me tell you what strikes me about the case studies in the book and how, I mean, as I'm reading it, I'm just like, I'm reading my biography in every story that's in the book, not every, but many of them mm-hmm. minus 13 days in 2010 when I went to Tibet and I didn't think I was going to have bandwidth to be able to post. Mm-hmm. I posted every day daily since December 28, 2009. So I missed 13 days. I didn't know that the Chinese, when they get serious about something, really take care of business, like build a wall, you know, and the wall goes all the way across the, the country. And, but, but China Mobile, all the way to base camp at 17,500 feet is perfect. It's, it's better connectivity, mostly because it's no one's on the connectivity, but it's all the way there. I could have done it. I've sent a Sunday newsletter every Sunday for now three years. That list is about 80,000. And I think that one of the reasons that I've been able to build any kind of awareness of me is simply consistency. And outside of the content creation, another part of your recipe for this is the consistent creation of content. So can you speak to that? Why is the consistency the next necessary component? Well, the book follows a four-step path that I found every person in every field in every region of the world followed. And you're an example of that too. And I almost made consistency the fifth step because at the end of every interview, I asked the person, if you could give one piece of advice to the people reading this book to encourage them and from your experience, what would it be? And almost every person used some form of the word 
consistency, tenacity, resilience. Yeah. Several people said it's the most important thing that passion is common, an idea is common, endurance is rare. I those, have that quote sitting here on the notepad because yeah. it's so, so. Those, those are the people that make it. And the other thing that came through is that so many people say people quit too soon. On average, I'd be interested to hear your experience. On average, it took these people about two and a half years to tip, two and a half years to start seeing enough traction to say, yep, this is working. I'm starting to achieve my goals. And boy, you know, that could be really disheartening if you're working and working and you're not sure if you're having an impact. One of the great quotes in the book was from Jennifer James, who's a great spokesperson and has done a lot for social good, social media for social good, bringing mommy bloggers together for social good. And she said, you have to keep going even when you don't know your impact, as long as you're seeing signs. So what was your experience with this? How long did it take you? I sat down with my wife on December 28th, 2009, and I said, I'm going to change my life dramatically, and I want to prepare you for this. I'd been following Chris Brogan, and I've been following Seth Godin, mm-hmm. and I said, I'm going to get up in the morning at 5 instead of 6.30, and I'm going to write a blog post, and within 10, I said, within one year, I'm going to be keynoting sales conferences. It was mm-hmm. 10 months In 10 months, I got the first gig and started. But the thing that I added to the consistency is I started sharing about eight or nine other people's stuff, and they started sharing mine. Yeah. And we built a little community, and that community since extended to about 50. And it's the community that helped, too. But it it bent the curve probably Mm -hmm. from two and a half years to about 10 months. But it was just very deliberate, consistent action. And I think you're right. And you hear Vaynerchuk, who you reference in the book consistently tell young people, you're not patient enough. You're not patient enough. You just Mm -hmm. have to keep at it and you're young, be Mm -hmm. patient. And I know he's -hmm. saying that to people who are nodding in agreement, but that are going to lose heart, like you're saying, because Mm -hmm. there's, I I pulled up my blog stats today talking to somebody in the first month that I started, I had 718 views. Mm -hmm. And I remember being thrilled that that was like, I'm closing in on a thousand. Yeah. I (laughs) remember those days too. And now I get 3,000 a day. Mm-hmm. And in that time, you're getting 100. And you're like, yes, I have 100 views. And uh, back yeah, to well, Vaynerchuk, well, his, well, his one yeah, is well, greater than zero. You know? Yeah. I'm sure you remember the day you got your first comment. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what a thrill that was. You, know, you bring up a great point, And it's this, there's this correlation, this connection between content and influence. And there was one person in the book that was like you that built his traction in about a year or less than a year. And the difference was he had this group of, of influencers who, help, who helped his content yeah. ignite. Yeah. And you, you can't ignore that strategy today. No, I think that there's a community for you. And if you find like-minded people, it's it's interesting. I do work with three buddies who were all sales speakers and we just did a virtual sales kickoff. We had 6,800 people, you know, with, with the four of us show up and, and mm-hmm. somebody wrote a comment on Facebook about these guys are peers and none of them's trying to hog the crowd. They're promoting each other. <laughs> and that's just what we do- we've done. You mm-hmm. know, there's no mm-hmm. scarcity 
mindset when there's just so much work. Let me move us to Cal Newport and follow your passion and the money will come and his dismantling of that because a lot of people are passionate about things, one, that aren't going to be commercially viable. And then a lot of people like you are passionate about tennis and hiking, but there's not probably a great sustainable long-term interest there for writing about boating and books or uh, any of the other novel ideas you shared with us in the book that didn't take off. What's a sustainable <coughs> interest? And I, I want you to talk about this because I think it's an important concept where people, they're passionate about something, but it's, not, it's really truly not sustainable. Yeah. You know, one of the interesting things when I, I did tons of research on this book, I, I, I wanted to make sure that I, my idea was going to be original and to stand out. So I read every book and I watched every video and every blog post I could read on this subject. And, you know, frankly, there was just a lot of fluff out there that people kind of started with find your passion and it kind of stopped there too. And even some of the academic books said, well, it's not quite passion. We don't really know what to call it. And then they would like flip and start calling it passion again. And I said, okay, well, let's call it what it is. Let's come up with a new term because you're all saying it's not necessarily passion. Passion can be important. And so the, the term I came up with was sustainable interest. And there's two key components there. Number one, it has to be something that you love. It has to be a real interest and it might be your passion or maybe a hobby is just a hobby and you're going to ruin it if you try to turn it into your career. But it does have to be something that you love, but it also has to be something that will resonate with people. You have to have an audience that cares, that's big enough to make a difference. Remember, all of this is about achieving a goal. So if, if there's nobody out there that's going to help you achieve that goal, then what are you doing? You can't just go headlong into following a passion without thinking it through. Let's make a little plan. Let's just take a couple days here, read my book. Let's have a plan and give yourself the very best chance to succeed. And I've got a lot of exercises in the book because I don't want to leave people hanging. I don't want to say, well, it's not just a passion, it's a sustainable interest, so go do that. I would be just like everybody else. <laughs> so I think I've got some really battle-tested exercises in the book to help people focus. And I'm getting a lot of feedback now because the book is starting to get into people's hands saying, oh my gosh, this is like turn my life around. I see what I've been doing wrong. I'm, well, I, 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 I don't know how energy. many times you say start with a plan. In the book, yeah. at more more than once. If I did a word search, I guess uh, yeah. half a dozen times. Yeah. Number one, and I'll tell you what I appreciate about your book is the directiveness about the exercises. I did the same thing in my book because I'm always frustrated. You know, I'm a big Malcolm Gladwell fan. Oh, I, I love have no idea what to do with it after I read it. Like blank, so right. I just trust my intuition blindly. I mean, what, what, I'm not <laughs> sure what I'm supposed to do now. Yeah, and I have uh, a new and, observation. <laughs> And I like the observation and I get it. Like your weakness can be your strength. Okay. But how do I focus on my weakness? You know, I, I don't know how to do that, but with your book though, the exercises, they're immediately actionable, which I like. That's my favorite thing. Now oh, go do. You. Yeah. Thank you. And there's actually, I don't know if you saw this or not. 
because we, you know, we put this together pretty quickly, but there's actually a workbook that goes with the, so with the I book. Saw that in the book. And there's like some bonus content out there and there's like some, some templates you can download. So you've got a link and I'm keeping these things updated. And so you can like, there's like a measurement plan because again, I don't want people to quit too soon. As long as they're seeing elements of success, just keep on going. You got to give it a year or two. I wrote this blog post a few. How many times have you heard that said when you were talking to somebody? I wrote this blog post. (laughs) One comes before two, two comes before three, every single time, right? You don't go one, 27,000. No, you have to go through all the numbers in between there. And I think that people get frustrated that they think, well, 17 is not a great number. It comes before 18. And then, yeah, you know, it yeah. just, it just, yeah, does. That, is, oh, yeah, that is such a great piece of wisdom. I wish I would have cha- called the chapter of the book that one comes before two. That's great. I love that. And it, it seems to every, every time, but I do think yeah. people quit too soon. Yeah. I'm in a fairly crowded niche market. And I do my own thing. I'm different from my peers. I have the things that make me different. And I, you wrote in the book about finding the right choice there. And I just want to ask you about how narrow does that have to be? How narrow do you think now? Because you're not getting first mover advantage many places. So what do you think about that? And how should somebody who's thinking about how do I get known in what I do? How narrow do I go? Wow, that's an amazing question. It's a difficult question. And again, the main idea is that you, the niche has to be big enough to matter. That's kind of the bottom line. And the other thing is sometimes you're not really certain until you start. So one of the things I emphasize in the book is, look, you're probably not going to get it right the first time. Take one step, just start, because there might be something that someone in your audience tells you and you go, oh my gosh, that's right. That's it. I was coaching an executive from a company the other day and I'm working through some training based on my book. And she kept saying, well, you know, I'm interested in this. I'm interested in this and I'm interested in this. And she just seemed, she was so confused. She was so overwhelmed. And then she said this amazing statement. She does like extreme sports and executive coaching and all these different things. She said, my greatest joy is when I bring people to their moment of courage. And I said, that's it. That's your only eye. That's your sustainable interest. And I thought she was going to cry. She said, it was right in front of me. It was right in front of me. And I just needed someone to see it. I just needed to hear it. And she is so energized. It's kind of like you. It's like tomorrow, boom, it's starting, baby. And so that's why I encourage people, just take that step because people will help you and you'll be molded. And, you know, my voice, my blog is somewhat different than it was six months ago. It's going to be different six months from now because I'm evolving and I'm learning and I'm getting better and it's becoming easier. But that will never happen if you don't take the first step. Did your and this happened for me, so I'm leading the the witness here if this is true for you. (laughs) Isn't it sometimes you you discover what you know 
and what you are through the act of producing the content consistently? Doesn't it sort of just like you're like, it's been here. It just was already in there. You didn't know it. You didn't see it, but it was there the whole time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've got a quote in the book that says, we create content, but content also creates us. Yeah, that's it. I have three more questions I want to ask you. Okay, so I want to go to two more from the book, and then one I want to go backwards in your past. Okay. I want you to just describe human content versus non-human content. Let me tell you one of my my favorite stories about one of my favorite clients. Spell out this difference about human content. So there's this fellow who left his sales executive job in London, moved his family to Provence, France, to start a winery. This was at the beginning of a recession. He had 600 competitors in Provence making rosé wine. Some of them had been there 200 or 300 years, and it seemed like this was going to be a very unlikely opportunity. So after he started making wine for a year or so, he realized that making wine really isn't about crushing grapes. It's about marketing and he needed help. So he reached out to me and he said, you know, I'm thinking about creating content and here's a link for this video that I made. So I clicked on the link and this guy is standing on top of this giant machine and the sun is rising in Provence and the, you know, the dew is dripping on the vines and He starts to say, you know, a lot of people think that we pick our grapes by hand here. Oh, no, 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 no. We use these big machines. And as he's saying this, the machine starts to move. And he's losing his balance. And he's trying to be cool and tell this story. And this is why I decided to work with him. Because he kept it in. He wasn't afraid to be human. The story was so much more interesting and so much more entertaining because he's fallen off this thing and he's trying to be cool while he's doing this. And I thought, this guy gets it. This guy, I think we could beat these people who have had their wineries and their families for 200 or 300 years because we did this research that showed that really had no digital presence. And that's the difference. To stand out today, you have to be original. And to be original, you have to have the courage to insert your story, your feelings, your ideas into the narrative. We have no choice. You know, to stand out, there's only one you. You have no competition. And so if you can create, and I'm not saying you have to spill your guts, But you have to create some emotional connection, some awareness that leads to engagement and engagement that leads to to loyalty and trust. And if you can do that, that trumps everything. It doesn't matter what happens next because people will be loyal to you and and because they love you. You can't say trumps anything right now. It's uh, politically- I caught myself too too late. (laughs) Let me, me, without driving us down the road of politics, because I don't want to go there, and I'm a bleeding heart libertarian, so Uh my candidate smoked pot and didn't know where Aleppo was. He thought it was the the woodmaker who made Pinocchio. I was cheering for him too. But don't you think that was some of how he won, was the authentic nature of him? And I mean- the mistakes yeah. and all the stuff, it was it's so real and raw compared to the right. manufactured politician that it yeah. played. 
Yeah, I mean, that's exa- I mean, people were ready for that. I think it sends a message to the world. And even some of the candidates who I preferred, I would watch them on television and I would just say, please be real. Yeah. Say something that's off script, that's human, that isn't just going in the wind. Please, I want to believe in you, but you've got to get off the script. Yeah. These are the people I really liked. And so, you know, the guy that won, I mean, he was completely off script. And, you know, whether you love him or you hate him or you agree or you disagree, or he sent a profound message. And, and the greatest irony of all is the billionaire is speaking for, is a populist. <laughs> the billionaire, I mean, what in the world happened here? The blue-collar workers are behind the billionaire. His daughter called him a blue-collar billionaire, and I don't know that that's too far from the truth. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. know, And, you know, just the the power of seeing him in in the campaign jet, you know, eating Kentucky Fried Chicken. (laughs) Yeah. You know? You don't get more American than that. You don't get any more down-to-earth than that. No. So, whatever. Okay, the last question from the book is not from the book. What was it like to study under Drucker? I just have to know. I just have to know. Oh, there is not a day in my life that goes by that I don't I don't think about him. And I had the great fortune to study under him at the Claremont Graduate University, which was the business school was named for him. And he was the wisest man, man I've ever known. And he was also just one of the kindest by the time I knew him, he was probably in his, I want to say he was mid to late 70s. And he was just, you know, a grandfather. He would come into class and he would lecture for three hours with no notes. He'd have a carafe of coffee there and just talk about one of the books that he wrote. And it was listening to him was like listening to the history of business. And the reason he had such a profound impact on me is because he's one of the rare people that you meet in your life that can distill complexity to its essence. And that's probably the greatest lesson I've learned from him is to just see the patterns. And and I think that's kind of a hallmark of my books is that I can see patterns and people seem so overwhelmed and maybe they even feel hopeless. And I see the patterns that, and I see how the dots connect. And, and that was the greatest thing he taught me. I just can't imagine being around a guy. I, I never met him. I've read his work. Yeah. And it's just like, I'm thinking, what's it like to be with a guy who only has penetrating insights as thoughts? Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I mean, is, is I mean, every he, thought- see, I mean, he wrote his books in the, in the 60s, in the 70s, in the 80s. And if you haven't looked up this book, it's one of the most remarkable books you'll ever see. It's called Entrepreneurship and Innovation. Or is it? I, let's see. I've got it right here. I always mix it up. Innovation and Entrepreneurship. I always flip it. Innovation and Entrepreneurship. He wrote this book in 1984 and basically predicted the entrepreneurial economy that we have today. I don't know why every company in America, big and small, doesn't use this book as a blueprint of how to do it and how to disrupt themselves. You just read this book, you think, oh my gosh, did he come from another planet or something? How can he be this brilliant? 
I mean, so it was an amazing, amazing experience. I was, I was the youngest person they ever accepted into the program and I kept getting rejected. <laughs> and finally I went to the Dean and I said, I am filing a, and it was kind of in jest, but kind of serious, but <laughs> I said, I'm filing a complaint based on EEO, equal opportunity employment, equal employment opportunity. And he said, what do you mean? I said, I'm young. Yeah. I said, everybody in that class has gray hair. You need me. And he just burst out laughing. He said, you wore me down. All right. I'll let you in the program. We're back to endurance. Yeah. We're back to, I think I was 27 or 28. And everybody in the class was a vice president in this, you know, graduate program. But I did. I mean, I added something too. They need, they needed my perspective and energy. That's amazing. I'm jealous of your experience there. Let me tell you what I believe is probably the most popular piece of work you've written. And I want to take you back to it. And you can correct me if I'm wrong. Content shock. Uh, Did that get more attention than anything you've written? Yes, I would say so. Describe it for people so that they know what we're talking about. Because I think it was, I mean, when you wrote it, how many years ago was that? Two or three? It was January, January 6th, 2014. Yeah, so we're three years now since you wrote mm-hmm. that. So tell people what that is and give me your update on that. Where are we with Content Shock now? Well, the idea was, I mean, again, it took me a long time to figure out what my gift is. It wasn't baseball. <laughs> it wasn't music. I did not become an astronaut. So sometime maybe in my mid-30s, I finally discovered my gift, and that is this. I can see how trends come together. I can see we've got this thing going on here and this thing going on here, and I can see where we're going to be, where we need to be. And that's why I was so good in marketing. It's, it's just I can see where we need to be. So I was getting this feeling about marketing was getting harder. It was getting more competitive. It was getting more difficult. And you know, people were saying, you know, if I had to start all over again, I just don't know if I could do it. I'm thinking, well, why is that? I started doing some research and looking at some statistics. And basically what I did was applied a very simple economic model to content. And I said, we are in an era where content is exploding. And in any human, natural, or economic system, when the supply and demand changes dramatically, something has to shift. And I predicted that with this explosion of content, it would be more difficult to compete it would be more expensive to compete because to stand out, we've got to have greater, better content. There's a cost to that. We've got to promote our content. There's a cost to that. And I said, the gravy train is over. The days of, you know, the days of living off your laurels, off of free content are over for some businesses. So that really had a cataclysmic impact on people. And, oh gosh, I've kind of lost count, but I think there have been something like 4,000 blog posts now that have been written about that blog post. Yeah. And I would say all but maybe five of them say, yeah, he's right. We get it. So I think it's pretty much been, it's proven out. I mean, when I wrote that post, the average organic reach on Facebook was 26%. So if you, if you were a company and you posted content, you could expect 26% of your followers on average. Today, 
2017, it's less than 1%. Wow. Why? Because there's too much stuff. Facebook reports on average, one of their customers can see an average of 1,500 articles a day if they didn't filter it. So they're cutting, 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 cutting down. And the first people they're hurting is us, businesses. That's content shock. So what do we have to do? Well, we have to find something new. We have to something better, a new content form. It's going to cost money. We've got to promote. We've got to boost. And that's content shock right in our faces. And you see this everywhere with signs like, you know, page views, engagement. Everything is down, down, down across the board. And people have to find new ways to compete. And so I just thought it was common sense when I wrote it. I didn't know it was going to be, you know, kind of a controversial article. You, you were um, the skunk at the garden party. Yeah. Yeah, I was at the time. But I mean, I don't care. I'm going to tell the truth. And sometimes people in our field don't have a business perspective. They've got an agenda. What would Drucker do? Oh, he would always tell the truth. But the difference between him and me is he was always right. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think that's true. Mark, thanks so much for sharing this and for being known, because that's how I found you, and I've been following your work for some time. So thanks for joining us here. Oh, Anthony, thank you so much for the great interview, and thank you for being so prepared. That, And again, I'm so grateful that you spent time with my content. That means a lot. That was Mark Schaefer, and you can find him at businessgrow.com. I'm Anthony Anarino. You can find me at thesalesblog.com and also at youtube.com forward slash Anarino. When you go out to either one of those sites, sign up and subscribe so that I can reach you every day with content that will help you sell more, be more, do more, have more, and contribute more. Until next time, this is Anthony Anarino, and you have just been in the arena. Audio editing and show notes by podcastfasttrack.com. Get 15% off your first month by mentioning this show.